Okay. I think that clock up there is a little... I think it's slow. Um, we might wait a second here <clears throat> for anybody else to get in. Um, hey, a question here. How many of you came for dinner tonight? Let me ask you this. Um, <clears throat> did the did the line go any quicker, or was the number down a little bit? Both? Okay. Well, we've been thinking about trying to... It's gotten to where last year we were sometime, we were 60, 70 people. We're now up around 120, okay? And we just don't have a lot of room. Um, but I think room isn't always the issue. We can get backed up with... Um, the line, and it takes too long to, you know, to get through it. So we were we were trying to figure out some ways to speed that up. <clears throat> um, I suggested that we just quit giving options for dessert and stuff like that. Just straight prison food. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> so <clears throat> anyway. Well, you know what? I think that's one of the best ideas that I, I never thought of it, um, that we've had f for who knows how long. It's been a wonderful opportunity to fellowship, and uh, it's just good. So, okay, <clears throat> let's pray, and then we'll try to make some sort of effort to understand Eastern Orthodoxy, okay? Father in heaven... Thank you for the day. Thank you that you go with us wherever we go, Lord. You are there and you watch over us. Your eye is upon us. Your ear is open to our prayer. We thank you. We thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we did um, <clears throat> Catholicism. That's an awful lot to do in one night. But... Um, the reason I did Catholicism and then we're doing Christian or, or doing Orthodoxy is, of course, the joint history and then Orthodoxy, Eastern Church, splitting off um, from the Western Church. Um, so you, you, Orthodoxy would make no sense without the history of the Roman Catholic Church and then coming off of that. <clears throat> How many of you here... Let's say, let me ask you this. First of all, how many of you would say you know zero about the Eastern Orthodox Church? Okay? How many would know like just <laughs> a notch above zero? <clears throat> how many know maybe, you know, you had friends or whatever, know a fair amount about Eastern Orthodoxy? Okay? Anybody else? Okay. Um, this is, well, I don't know if this will be harder than doing Roman Catholicism or not. We're, most of us are to some degree familiar with the, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so you can kind of, you can study that because there's a f fair amount of familiarity. It's a bit different with the Orthodox Church. <clears throat> I have to go into some history here 
which I don't think is re- repetitious. When we've done church history, we stuck with early church, Roman Catholic, then the Reformed, or the, the Reformation, and never bothered much with orthodoxy. So, <clears throat> um, I don't know who said this. I think it was some famous English poet. Maybe somebody here will know. East is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. Anybody remember that? Anybody ever heard it? Anybody know who said it? Because I don't. I think it was some English poet. But if there's ever a phrase, secular or not, that fits kind of the background, that's it. There's a fundamental cultural even psychological and I think um, what Um, a logical habit or pattern that the East has that is different from the West. Um, Now it's gotten greater through the centuries um, but East and West just seem to be on different tracks. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, I think a, an ancient move that God made um, in the book of Acts when he prevented Paul, as Paul moved across kind of the northern tier of what's today Turkey, wanting to go into the interior and the coast, Ephesus, of Asia Minor then. And the Lord prevented him, said, no, keep going. Uh, No, don't go there. Um, Then he wanted to turn north into kind of the Balkan area. And says the Holy Spirit said, no. And so they get to the beach at Troas, where you can't go any further, and they have, he has the vision, come on over into Macedonia and help us. That was the move, with that move, the gospel went west, and it went to Europe. Um, it's not that the gospel didn't go east, it did. Um, went all the way to China, went to India, um, but its strength has been in the West. Now, um, here's what we have to understand. That for, I'm going to say, at least, after there seemed to be some fairly clear um, gap between the Eastern Catholic Church and the Western Latin Catholic Church, it took probably five, six, you might even be able to go as far as 700 years to have a divorce, okay? Um, It just took a long time and a gradual separation, a gradual disagreement on certain things, doctrines, so forth. Um, 
some of the early, let me tell you what began what a lot of people think, in addition to the cultural and, and intellectual patterns of the East versus the West, um, the first maybe outward observable move that we could, uh, we could point to was during the reign of Constantine. Now Constantine, um, early 300s, came to the throne, uh, was friendly towards Christianity, um, was a convert. A lot of people say Constantine made Christianity the state church of Rome. He didn't do that at all. All he did was suspend an edict that banned Christians. So kind of in a um, negative way by canceling the ban, he tacitly approved of the right of Christians to exist and to worship. Okay, But he did not make it the state religion. It, it awaited a guy... Um, Theodosius, who came after Constantine, who officially made the made Christianity the state church of Rome, and went about closing down the pagan temples and all that kind of stuff. But I I have to confess some history I'm blank on here. But in um, there was a great council, the first um, what's called ecumenical council, which everybody was there was in 325 in Nicaea. Out of that came the Nicene Creed. Um, they dealt with other issues too, kind of finishing up on the um, books that belong to the New Testament and several things. There was some subsequent tinkering with um, the Nicene Creed, which was necessary. Sharpen up some things and so forth. But that was held in 325. There was such dissension um, going on especially among the Eastern Church with Alexandria, Antioch, um, you know, the eastern end of the um, Mediterranean Sea, that it threatened the peace and security of the Roman Empire. So Constantine called a church council. That's an emperor who's a non-religious leader, calls a religious um, Con uh, conference to settle doctrinal issues. Okay, now that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was. It set a pattern for the East, and in the East, <clears throat> the emperor was considered kind of like the king in England is cons considered quasi the head of the Church of England. Okay, the Eastern Church thought more like that. Um, the circumstances were different. In the West, the Roman Empire was itself crumbling. And so in one case, negotiating with Attila the Hun, Pope Leo, I believe it was, is the one that went out and met him because the emperor got killed and the Roman army scattered. And so the 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 state collapsed and the only thing left was the church. So the church stepped into the gap. So in the West, you have the church dominating the state. In the East, it was the opposite. Okay, now, <clears throat> but the kind of the opening for this gap to begin 
I don't know why Constantine did this. I'm sure I could find it somewhere, but anyway. He moved from Rome. He, he, he moved the Roman Empire capital from Rome to Constantinople. It was Byzantium then. Changed the name to Constantinople, which is today Istanbul. Okay? So he, and I don't know why he did that. I don't know what the reasons were. Other than Rome was not well protected. I mean, they, they were, the Vandals, the, the, lots of people were coming in and plundering them and threatening them and so forth. So anyway, <clears throat> he moved the capital and the palace and the center of power to Constantinople. Well, that isolated the Pope in Rome from the state. Okay? And the reason that the headquarters, as it were, of the Christian church uh, were in Rome was because Rome was the capital city. That makes some sense. And the churches that were great metropolitan areas, and then, of course, an important church like the church in Rome, necessarily had more weight among the churches, wherever they were, than anybody else. And the, the pastor, the bishop of the church in Rome was head and shoulders authoritatively and influence-wise um, than the guy that would have been in some farm in France, okay? a parish priest somewhere. Um, it seemed natural. The Western Latin church also itself, as it gradually grew its system, took on the, a parallel to the Roman Empire. Very hierarchical, which the Catholic Church today remains. So do a lot of Protestant churches. We're all Westerners. We are... The, and the church is the cornerstone of Western civilization. And so <clears throat> the, the church adopted the structure, in a lot of cases, with lower echelons of authority. You had, you had local priests and pastors, then you had bishops, then you had archbishops, then you have cardinals. Cardinals didn't get at it for a while. Then you have the pope. Okay, well, after the, the um, capital got moved to Constantinople, all of a sudden the patriarch, is what the Eastern Church used the term, instead of the bishop necessarily, the patriarch in Constantinople was, of course, ecstatic. I mean, the king moved here and made it into a, his new capital. Now Constantinople is a rival to Rome. Okay? In the past, for 350 years, the reason the Pope, which the Pope didn't become the Pope right off the bat, but the reason the authority more and more and more resided in Rome was because it was the capital city. <clears throat> now Constantinople is. What do you do if you're the Pope? You're in Rome. The reason you are have authority in that city is because it's the capital city. It's not anymore. 
What do you do? Well, you scramble to think up another reason why Rome should be the center. It's no longer the capital. That argument is gone. So the Pope began preaching, writing, sending to everyone, um, preaching publicly, a new reason, and in his mind, a more solid reason for the church being, the headquarters being in Rome. And that was because it, according to tradition, was the church settled, started by Peter and Paul. Peter, of course, being the pope, uh, the first, they would say the first pope, the leader of the church. Because Jesus had said to him, you know, thou art Peter, um, which means pebble, on this great stone I'll build my church. He wasn't remotely referring to Peter. He was, re he was re referring to what Peter had said in answer to the question that Jesus put to them. Who do you say I am? Who do men say I am? Well, you're Jeremiah, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're somebody that prophet came back from the dead. Jesus said, okay, fine. What do you think? Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, you know, you've answered rightly. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, on this rock, that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, not Peter, I'll build my church. So that's the cornerstone is that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? <clears throat> now, I've heard that before. <laughs> Never mind. Um, anyway, so that became the new basis for not only the location of the center of authority being in Rome, but it also opened a brand new thing up for the papacy. Okay? The belief was that Peter... And it's interesting, they would go, you know, they, they, statements were made um, either that God spoke through or Peter spoke through, but a lot of times the phrase was Peter is still speaking through the, his ancestors um, or his descendants spiritually. And so when the Pope said such and such, it was Peter speaking through him, Peter being the head of the church spiritually. Is that now? Last I checked, I figured Jesus was probably the head of the church, um, not Peter. Okay, but um, that was an all brand new and much more authoritative argument for not only the location in Rome, but for the authority of the papacy. Period. Now, Constantinople in the meantime, is flourishing as any capital would. They're becoming rich. They're becoming um, trade centers. And, the, you know, the, there's, a power vac there's a vacuum over in Rome. And <clears throat> the Eastern Church, which looked now and felt that they owned 
the, the emperor because he now lived among them. He lived in Istanbul. Okay? They were not about to take orders from the pope off in Rome. So some of it was pure, uh, jealous, politicking, which has never been in the church. <laughs> Ever. Um, and so there were this rivalry kept going. That also figured then when some doctrinal issues would come up or authoritative issues or decisions the Pope would make, that resentment was there between West and East. And often it didn't matter what the Pope said as far as maybe he was dead right on a doctrine. It didn't make any difference to the Orthodox. He said it, so we don't like it. That just, they just spread further and further. Practices begin to change a bit between the churches. Um, not radically, but they began to kind of think on their own. And they went a different direction than Rome did. Now Rome, here was one of the differences um, between East and West. This is a little hard to explain. But Eastern thought is somewhat more circular. Western thought is very, very strongly linear. A, if A's true, B's true, C's got to be true, and D's for dead sure true. We think in a straight line. We look at the future that way. Our thinking, Western civilization thinking without us even thinking about it, is very precise, reasonable, logical, linear. Okay? Eastern was a little more mystical. For instance, we'll get to this in a second, but there are two words. The, the Latin word sacramentum is sacrament in the English, and it refers to a deposit of money originally, a deposit of money or property, almost like bail, but a deposit of money by people in a civil suit, both sides, the plaintiff and the defendant, and they deposited money in a sacred place, usually a temple, in some kind of a safe, and by putting that money there, it was a sacred honor and pledge that they were making that my case is legitimate, it's not frivolous, I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth, okay? Well, in the Greek, the same word was mysterium, okay? Mystery. Well, the Greek church, which is Eastern, more and more felt that the, the um, they felt that some of the precision that the Roman church got into regarding the great doctrines that were fought over for four or five hundred years, maybe six hundred years. The deity of Christ, the Trinity. Did Jesus have just a divine nature but inhabit a human body or did he actually have two natures? 
that's, the, that's where finally the doctrine came to. Yes, Jesus was fully human, fully divine. Okay? Um, <clears throat> the Eastern Church, it's not that they didn't care, but it was kind of like, what's the big deal? It's a mystery. We trust it. Okay, fine. Why dicker over little stuff? Well, Christ, the history of Christianity bears out that Roman, the Roman Catholic Church was correct to be precise for a couple hundred, maybe, maybe at least a hundred years. Um, there's, there, was, there were two words, homoi and homous, okay? Over, and that had to do with essence or substance. Was Jesus homoi to the, the essence of the Father similar? Or was he homousia, meaning the same? Similar and the same aren't the same thing. Now the Greeks would say it's just a mystery and we don't really care. We just, uh, that was their attitude. What's the big deal? The Romans, you know, the Catholics are saying, we got to nail this down. Rightly so. So frankly, I don't think, well, there's going to be some exceptions, but I don't know that the Eastern Church helped a whole lot as the centuries went on, as the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church did in keeping strict doctrine. Now, as Protestants, we believe they took some wrong turns, but nevertheless, out of that early church that was fixated on being precise came the doctrines we believe today. Okay? Now, um, <clears throat> here's where it, 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 it's, it, again, it gradually just got to where, remember the capitals moved in 330 to Constantinople. It was in, there was some junk earlier when they had councils and the Romans wouldn't show up. Nobody from Rome would show up. Everybody would be in Constantinople. They wouldn't even send delegates. So this just bubbled along and simmered along and got gradually worse and worse. Till finally um, the Eastern Church one of their pillar doctrines is absolutely if you then, I don't know about even, maybe even today all you have to do to say to say a a, an Eastern Orthodox pastor or somebody who's well-versed, just go say, you know, El Papa or say the Pope to them and they'll foam at the mouth and their eyes will roll back in their head. Um, but that's their, the, the, the fundamental thing with the Eastern Church is anathema of being under a Pope. They don't have one themselves. Uh, they didn't just have their own. They don't believe in it. Okay? That's one of their main first arguments against the Roman church. Don't believe in a pope. We're not, we don't believe it's biblical. It's nowhere in scripture that one man will be the representative of Jesus on earth. Just nowhere in scripture. And of course they didn't like it anyway. So um, they call then every major city, and then diocese and all that, they have the term patriarch. So there's a patriarch, patriarch of Constantinople, there's a patriarch of Greek, Greece, there's the patriarch of Kiev in Ukraine, patriarch of Russia, um, 
and that's their, but they will converse. They're a little bit looser because they can't compel uh, the other patriarchs to go along. They can't have a council as the Roman Catholic Church did for 2,000 years. And once they decide on it, that's the law. You get in line. Um, or we'll excommunicate you. That is Roman Catholic and Western Church, not necessarily Eastern. So it's a bit um, looser. They're more, um, or they're less um, than hierarchical. Now, let me get down to some um, doctrines. Just mentioned probably a main one, an early one, rejection um, of the uh, papacy. Another thing, then, then i got to get off of this the history stuff. Constantine died and had three sons, and they ended up splitting the Roman Empire three ways. All that did was weaken everything, and again, pitted east against west. Um, and it, it was just a further crumbling uh, of the whole thing. Now, um, <clears throat> I can't remember how many, how many councils there have been. There have been, um, I don't know how many. Remember, any, anybody here remember hearing, reading, whatever, about what was called Vatican II? Anybody? Okay, Vatican II was a council. Um, like they had way back in the threes and the four hundreds, when everyone gets together, debate is maybe carried out for months, and finally agreement has come, and we declare this is this is our position on such and such. Okay, and that was binding, at least supposed to be. Okay, um, the. Eastern Church only accepts the first seven ecumenical councils, which goes up to about the six or seven hundreds. And every council that the Catholics have had since, on whatever doctrine, Immaculate Conception of Jesus, or I mean of Mary, Infallibility of the Pope especially, which wasn't until 1870, um, the, the Eastern Church, they reject all that. They only listen to the first seven, which had to do with the Trinity and so forth. Um, now, they um, finally in 1054, okay, I know you're just at the edge of your seats here. Um, in 1054, a representative from the Pope in Rome, his name was Humbert, he showed up at now here, this is something that maybe is relevant to us. He showed up at the grand, massive church, um, St. Sophia, in Istanbul. It's there today. It's been repaired and rebuilt way back in the 12s or something. But nevertheless, it was a Christian church and was there... St. John Chrysostom preached there. He was, I believe, in the 600s. Um, it's a famous church. Well, 
when the, the, when the Muslims swept through and conquered the whole place in the 11s and the 12s, um, they never converted it to a Muslim or to a, to a mosque um, immediately. It stayed a Christian church or a Christian community there. And then real recently, um, under Erdogan of Turkey um, and previous people, they never turned it into a mosque. They didn't, you know, they had enough of a Christian population, they didn't want to stir them up. Um, then they turned it into a museum. And then about two years ago, three years ago, Erdogan, totally for politics, um, to keep his hold on Turkey, turned it into a mosque, which was, um, you know, it has been a church for 2,000 years, Christian church. And he finally, worship had stopped much earlier, but um, within, it's been no longer two or three years ago, he turned it into a mosque, which was a desecration, really, to an awful lot of people. Anyway, um, <clears throat> now, finally, so in 1054, this guy from the Pope comes and he walks into that great church of Sophia and he goes up to the, whoever was running things and handed him a papal bull. Now, that, the word bull just means declaration and it was excommunicating the patriarch of Constantinople, saying, you you are not a Christian. You're not a part of the kingdom of God. You're going to hell to be excommunicated. You're cut off from communion. Well, they hadn't spoken, you know what I mean? The, the East and the West hadn't had much to do with each other for 600 years, 500. So, oh, okay. <laughs> what a heartache. Um, but that was at least the official break. So 1054 is the official date of the break. Okay. Now, there was, it was a gradual break. There was always some hope that we should get back together and, you know, whatever. Um, but that didn't happen. And here's how slow stuff moved back then. 1204, and this is another date that you must cement in your mind and think about it you know, every morning when you get up. 1204 was the fourth crusade was going on then. Okay? The crusades were mostly sponsored by Rome to take back the promised land from the Muslims. And so they would, you know, get up a whole bunch of soldiers. Well, the whole they got a whole another. This is the fourth, and there were thirteen crusades. But they got the fourth one. Took tons of money. Kings had to do it, and the Pope began putting pressure on kings. You fund another crusade and provide the soldiers and the money to go to recapture the Promised Land, the, the Holy Land, from the Muslims, or we'll put an interdiction on you. Now, nobody knows what an interdiction is. This is something else that you have to know. Um, back then, the Pope, if you didn't do what you were told to do, and it frequently was used, the Pope would not only excommunicate a person, like the king or something, but they could lay what was called an interdiction. No priest, no Catholic priest in the whole of England or France or wherever could offer communion to anybody. Anybody. So the whole 
of worshiping Catholics in that uh, nation were in danger of hell fire because they were cut off from communion. So then you, the kings would come up with the money and put together a crusade. Well, they put together the fourth crusade and they got all the way to Constantinople, the army that was marching to the promise or to the Holy Land. They had contracted with a whole bunch for a whole bunch of ships um, with Venetian Venice Italians. Okay, I don't know what happened, but the Venetians reneged on the deal never showed up with the ships, kept the money. And so uh, it was not a good mood among the crusaders. They're far from home. I can't remember. They came from Spain or wherever. So they're mad. Now they're stuck. They don't have their ships to try to get down to where they can land, um, you know, on Gaza. So they end up had nothing else to do, so they thought, why don't we just sack Constantinople? We're here, it's rich, all kinds of money, there's gold everywhere. So the Fourth Crusade, who got short-circuited, never made it to the Holy Land, just tore up Constantinople. Now, that was the end. Um, That was 1204. That's 150 years after the patriarch of Constantinople was kicked out of the church by the Pope in Rome who they didn't pay attention to. Um, That sealed the deal. And so um, 1204 is considered the, the point of no return between the Western church and the Eastern church. Okay? They've gone their separate ways since. I did see a picture not too long ago and looking at, you know, reading some of this stuff. Um, of Pope John Paul II hugging the Greek patriarch. And you know, they wear all black and the kind of a, um, almost looks like a baker's hat or something. I don't know. Um, but at any rate, um, I don't know how far that went, but <clears throat> the bottom line is this. The, the, the Catholic Church is not going to give up on the Pope being the vicar of Christ on earth. The, the Eastern Church is never going to buy that there is a Pope, period. So, you know, they can hug and take pictures together, but it's not going to go any farther than that. Now, what do they believe? What, how are they different from, say, Protestant churches? How are they different from Catholic? Um, they have some differences with, uh, far more with us, Protestants, than they would with Roman Catholics, but they have enough that they, it's a bridge too far for them to get together. Um, here's some of their, their thinking, okay? Um, they, doctrine and practice um, is expressed through liturgy. Now, the Roman Catholic Mass is obviously a big deal. Um, The liturgy of the Eastern Orthodox is even more flamboyant. If you look at the inside of their churches, they're even more gilded and gaudy almost and too encrusted with gold and jewels than even the, what you would think a Catholic St. Peter's or something would be. Um, 
So the concept, they would to some degree probably deny this. But the concept of a personal experience with Jesus Christ by faith in which you ask him to forgive you of your sins and he comes into your heart and makes you anew, they would stare at you. I don't know that they get mad, I don't know, but they don't get it. Okay. Now, they claim faith. Faith is in all the liturgy they do. So, yeah, it is, that is faith. We take communion, so forth. But as far as a personal faith, they, they, don't, they don't have that. You're saved by baptism. You are considered, and here's what they, their phrase, Baptism is your Easter. You're brought from death to life. And they use the term chrismation, anointing with oil, which Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, a lot of different churches use the term confirmation. Okay? That is, for the Eastern Orthodox, that is the person's day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is granted to them. Okay, now, very close there between uh, the Catholics and um, the Eastern Orthodox and the Church of England and the Methodist Church and, as I said, Presbyterians. There's a lot of churches that have uh, baptism confirmation. The, the um, Orthodox Church, though, is a bit different. They, they practice, like the Catholics and a number of Protestant churches, they are mostly infant baptism. Now they do have, of course, adult. If you are transferring in or you're 50 and you left the Baptist and you want to be Orthodox, okay? Um, but most of it is infant baptism. They practice infant baptism, um, chrismation by making the sign of the cross with oil, anointing with oil. In fact, it's more than just that. They do that, but they will anoint their feet, anoint their hands, their eyes, the do, you know, oil all over them. And then there's a ritual washing of that off immediately after. This is all going on with an infant. Then, at the conclusion of that ritual, you just move into another portion where a little tiny bit of wine and bread soaked in pulverized and mixed with it is put in the infant's mouth for the Eucharist. Okay, So in their minds, you are brought from death to life. You're brought into the kingdom of God. We would call it being saved or converted in baptism. Then immediately oil is put on you for the infilling of the Holy Spirit as occurred with the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And then that you have your first communion. Okay? In, um, interestingly, they also have a ritual, and I can't remember the exact name of it. It's similar to penance, but not the same. But they have a ritual for people who leave the faith long enough to be considered separated to come back and be restored. They don't believe in eternal security. Okay? Neither is the Catholics, for that matter. Um, but anyway, it is liturgical then, ritualistic. You're saved by the liturgy. 
not by personal faith. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't any of them that don't have personal faith, but that's at least generally. Um, I mentioned that um, the difference between the East, they call the sacraments mystery. Now, the, the Eastern Church, like the Catholic Church, has seven sacraments. Okay, um, They are generally the same, but you have baptism, chrismation, and I need to mention this. The, the Roman Catholic Church has what's called apostolic succession. That is, every bishop that's ordained has to be ordained by another bishop. Every confirmation that is made has to be done only by a bishop, not by a local priest. Okay, That's because the bishops are considered to be in the uh, succession of the apostles. So that if you could figure it out, and there, I'm talking here literally, not figuratively, if you could trace it out and had enough records, um, you know, whoever that might be over, I don't know where the bishop is. I think the diocese in, in um, Wyoming's down in Cheyenne or Laramie, I'm not sure. Is it in Cheyenne? Okay. Okay, that bishop down there, he was, he was ordained by bishop so-and-so, who was ordained by bishop so-and-so, bishop so-and-so, Peter. Okay? The Eastern Orthodox are a bit different. They believe that the chalice of oil that is put on the infant or in the rare occasion of an adult converting to Eastern Orthodox, that oil is replenished, but it always has somewhere in it and since they're into mystery, they don't have to figure out where it is. But it's in that chalice somewhere is oil that was used by the 12 apostles when they laid hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit, like John and Peter down in Samaria in Acts 8. Okay? So it, they have a little bit different succession thing. Um, and this oil is all across the world. I mean, there's here in America, there's a Greek Orthodox called Orthodox Church of America. Some of that oil, if you could trace it back, Peter and Paul used it. Um, okay. Um, <clears throat> so, baptism, confirmation or chrismation, um, then communion, that is of course the main one. Then there is penance or reconciliation, just like Catholics have. Marriage is a sacrament. Anointing for the sick or last rites is a sixth sacrament. And then the last one is holy orders, becoming a priest. So that's the same. Now they believe different things about it. Let me just say this. Here's where there's differences. Um, the Catholic Church believes in transubstantiation. Everybody knows what that is. When the priest prays, and they're very precise, the Western Church, very precise. When the priest blesses the elements of bread and wine, at that point, they become the literal, actual, biological blood and flesh of Jesus Christ. 
Okay? The Orthodox believe the same thing. They believe that it becomes the actual body and actual blood of Jesus. So you're drinking the blood of Jesus. Okay? But the Orthodox isn't sure what happens. <laughs> they just know it does. They don't know it's, a, it's the start of the blessing, it's the end of the blessing, it's when you actually partake it. And they have a generally a different way. They'll do it, the priest has a spoon and will spoon wine, you know. And of course, there were issues during COVID on all that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, so they believe technically the same thing Catholics do, the actual blood um, of Christ and so forth. Then, um, let's see here. <clears throat> Another major thing. Now, I can't explain this. You'll, I know, look, we've only got 16 minutes for you to endure this. Um, the, anybody know, anybody ever seen an icon? Okay, anybody ever seen, or did you not, you might not know what you were looking at. A picture of a saint or Jesus, or Mary, or whoever, with that disc, uh, light disc around, okay. Those are called icons. The Roman church doesn't use that. There was in the about six or seven hundreds, there was a real rebellion against all that, and the Roman church got rid of all icons. Um, the Eastern Church didn't. They have them yet today. They're everywhere. They're on virtually. Have you ever been into, you know, really, I shouldn't, I got to be careful there. Ever been in the house of really old people? Um, you know, and they've got 95,000 pictures on the walls. So you can't even tell the color of the wall is. Okay. That's about the way it is with the Orthodox and their icons, their pictures. They have them strategically located. If you go into the house, we had an Eastern Orthodox family live right across our garage doors, you know, straight at each other, across the street when I was in Indiana. Wonderful family. Um, but they were very careful. You go into the house, and whichever was the eastern wall of the hallway or whatever, and the eastern corner of the living room or whatever room, There'd be an icon there, and you went to the east, and you either, you, you, they would kiss it, or you would touch it, or you'd cross yourself in front of it, okay? They completely deny, and in their thinking, I'm, I can understand it, they deny that that's idolatry. They say that it doesn't have anything to do with violating the commandment thou shalt not make a graven image okay this is that disc of light and those pictures especially of jesus are reminders that he became one of us he clothed himself with human flesh he's very god and very man completely and they believe this is a good point too that the whole plan of redemption is to restore that image in us. I can go along with that. And the, 
disk of light is symbolizes the um, the divineness of God's spirit renovating that, especially if it's a picture of a saint or whoever, um, that person and that that halo is emblematic of God's image being restored to a human. Okay? And they believe that rather than that being any kind of idolatry, it is in fact a perpetual reminder that God wants to give us back, even in a human body, the um, image of God. Maybe one uh, big comparison between Catholic, this is going to be too much of a generalization, but in a sense, Catholic and Orthodox, it seems like the Catholics struggled more, and rightly so, uh, with not only the humanity of Jesus, but the deity of Jesus, because there were heresies that denied he was the first creator, but he, first creation, but he wasn't really God, he was similar to God. The Catholics fought over the deity of Christ. It seems like the Orthodox fought more, focused more on the humanity of Christ. And those icons are of human beings who have had this um, nature of the, the renovation and the image of God restored in their hearts. Okay? Um, those are a huge deal to them. Um, we kind of look at it and go, okay. Um, but what did you say? No, you're exactly right. They do not pray to them, and that's, their, that's the difference. They don't pray to them. They use the word too, which is, it, it's, it's a fine line, but they use the word venerate rather than worship. To venerate means to honor and remember. Um, it's similar, I think, the concept, to when we have communion. We don't worship communion but we venerate the cup and the bread because it's a symbol and a reminder of the body and blood uh, of Christ. Okay, So it seems a fine line, but I think it's a, it's a clear line. Um, now, <clears throat> um, let's see here. Here's another difference Catholics. They venerate Mary. Uh, the Catholics believe Mary was, uh, in addition to Jesus, that Mary also was not born with any inbred sin, no inherited sin. And so she was, a, the immaculate uh, conception is not talking about Mary. That's under virgin birth. Immaculate conception is Mary too, to carry Jesus, the Son of God, couldn't have had any inclination born with an inclination to sin. She, she was also didn't have inbred sin. The Eastern Church believes that Mary indeed was not uh, immaculately conceived, did have the need of salvation like everybody else. They venerate her and it's a mixed kind of a deal. But they believe Mary could have sinned, but chose not to. Okay? Whereas the Catholics believed it would be impossible for Mary to sin because she had no sin 
when she was born. Okay? Um, let's see. They also, with the Catholics, believe they have billions of saints um, that are in all these pictures. I, th- I swear that the... the I, th- I don't know for sure, but it seems like Orthodox have more saints and more days dedicated to saints and more feasts of saints than even the Catholics do. And that's saying a lot. Um, but they've just got millions of, of saints and they believe with the Catholics that the saints intercede on our behalf. So they pray. In addition to Jesus' intercession, the saints are praying for us. Okay. Now, I don't know how many of you ever read the Babylon Bee, um, but not real long ago there was a cartoon and it shows a bunch of people in heaven that are, quote, saints. And they're all looking at each other saying, did you, did you hear that for 2,000 years, or how many ever, years, 2,000 years people on earth have been trying to talk to us and think, we're, you know, think that they're praying to us to do stuff and we didn't even know it. Um, the Eastern Orthodox have the same doctrine that um, saints pray. Uh, another difference, a big difference, is um, married clergy. They have never bought into the Catholic business of um, celibate clergy. And so um, there, there are some ways in which Eastern Orthodox is more palatable to an evangelical Christian than Catholicism would be. There's a bit more in common. Um, so, now, any questions? I seriously doubt there are any because you know if you ask any, you got to stay in here longer. Um, so, but yeah. Aren't they more ritualistic? Yeah, I, I think you're right. The liturgy is the huge deal. I really don't know much about. Um, how much actual preaching in that, you know, is a part. I do know this. Here's something that I'll throw out. This might be a year, two years old, maybe at the most, maybe three. I don't have a statistic, a number. But among the whatever generation we have now that's the 20-something, late teens, 20, what is it? I can't keep track of it. <laughs> it's, it's basically, you know, <clears throat> not a lot upstairs and they don't like to work. Um, but <clears throat> other than that, um, among that age group, Eastern Orthodox is the fastest growing church. Now, I'm going to tell you why. My opinion, but it's, I'm the Pope here. I'll, I'll tell you this. We had two kids, more than that, but coming and going here. We've had a bunch of young guys coming here to church who are going to this welding school out, you know, across from Nanamans. And there were these two kids that were talking to me a couple Sundays ago, and um, they, they mentioned some churches in town when they came here, and I don't know how long that course lasts, but they get certified for high-pressure 
pipeline stuff. So they, you know, it can't be, you know, online for three days. I don't know how long they're here, but at any rate, they mentioned some other churches in town that they tried when they first came to town. And it was interesting to me because they're kids. They were 20, 21, maybe 22. Um, and they said there was nothing there. It was just a show. It was just a performance. Smoke machines and the strobe lights and all that nonsense. They said, when we came here, we just felt like this was a good church. And there was truth here. And they said, we loved coming here. We hate to leave. Um, and then last Sunday they talked to me and they said, this is our last Sunday. Friday's graduation and we're, uh, we're leaving. And I asked them where they were from. One of them told me that he was from um, Colorado, I think it was. No, no, no. He was from Wisconsin. Then the other one I said, where, where, you know, where are you from? His name was Aaron. He said, well, I'm from northeastern Nebraska. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm familiar. I've been through Omaha, Lincoln, and all that a bunch of times. He says, no, it's north and east a, a bit of that up in the corner. And I said, I don't know anything about, I know 80 through Nebraska. I've been on that a million times. But I said, the only thing I know about northeastern Nebraska is Laurel. And I said, you never heard of that. I said, there's nothing there. There's a grain elevator there and, you know, one of these single grandma's kitchen deal where everybody goes and it's like the big table down at Lulabelle's. You know, you sit there and drink coffee and solve all the world's problems. Fool your ignorance. But anyway, this kid looked at me and he says, that's where I'm from. And I said, what in the world? And he said, why were you there? I said, yeah, there's nothing there. I said, well, I can't remember how many years ago. It's probably been 20 years or more. But we had a, an evangelical church in that denomination. We had a little tiny church in Laurel, Nebraska. And a kid that I knew from when I was, or a guy that I knew from when we were little kids, um, out in Oregon was pastoring there. And he asked me to come and preach a revival meeting to both of the people that were there. Um, and so I was there for a week. The church was so small that they couldn't pay him very much. He had to work at a grain elevator to support himself. And it was probably 20 or 30 people there. And I won't go too far. I think Jessica, I don't know if Jessica's back there. She's already heard this story. Um, but they had, they, they had a little tiny kind of apartment thing over the church that, for a parsonage, for a place. So that's where I was staying um, with you know, the family. They had one little boy, and his, his head turned all the way around. You know what I mean? His eyes glowed in the dark. I've never seen a kid like that. Um, I've never seen a kid like that. Um, and they had a, a small little sanctuary in this church and hard pews with no carpeting or anything. And this kid was probably no bigger, maybe two, three, I don't know. And he would run back and forth with these hard shoes on the wooden pews. Why am I up there trying to preach to 20 people? 
And then they had these little bugs. They used to, uh, we, when I was a kid, we used to call them cedar bugs. I don't know what in the world they really were. They didn't harm you. They didn't bite. But they were kind of black and gray, and they were, you know, I don't know. There was paneling on the walls. And so this kid would see those little bugs up there, and he would, and the paneling was kind of loose. And so he, I'm preaching, I guess, counting the days. Okay, I've only got three more nights here, and then I got to get it. Then I get to get out of here. But there'd be a bug up there, and he'd run on the and go over and just beat on the wall while I'm preaching. Mother doing nothing to try to get the bug to fall down. Um, anyway. That's my life in Laurel, Nebraska. But anyway, this kid that was from Laurel, um, you know, he said, uh, we're going to, we, obviously we know the church, we'll, we can do the live stream thing and whatever. Um, so we have influence even into the deserts of northeastern Nebraska. Um, anyway, now, what would you ask me? Me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, but, but like ritual, which frankly is not all bad, you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of ritual. And it all had meaning. But e- it can easily become a wooden ritual that your salvation is in going through the ritual and in experiencing it as it's supposed to be. And you cross yourself, you say the whatever, whether it's Catholic or whoever, you say enough Hail Marys and you say enough Our Fathers and you're forgiven and you go about your business. Um, It's very easy to fall into outward form and then it shifts into what's called formalism. And so you are saved by form and by participation and by going through rituals rather than a living faith in your heart and knowing, knowing Jesus um, personally. That's always the danger of that. But I do think that the younger generation is attracted to a sense of awe mystery, and exaltedness. Um, The transcendency of God matters to people. They are tired of a uh, fishing buddy Jesus. I think there's a hunger for the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Um, There's a hunger for that that God built into the human heart and it's starved enough, they'll, they'll, again, young people, stunning. But that's where they're going. Okay, any other questions before we quit? Um, you know what? I knew somebody was going to ask me that. I don't think they do. And I remember seeing something. Um, I don't think they do. Um, but I, I can't be dead sure on that. Icons probably would be their f- 
form of a rosary, I guess. I mean, that was big. Yeah. It's just funny how much they have a strong dislike for the Catholic side of things. Yeah. But they'll be like, yeah, we don't pray to those saints. We don't just sit on our knees. And, you know, it's just it's almost yeah. the same thing. Yeah, it is. So, but yeah. Do that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of things. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? All right. We're, we're good. The kids won't be out for a few minutes. So let's pray. Now, what my plan is, I don't see, I don't know that if we can get, um, get through, well, I know we can't get through Protestantism in one lesson, but we'll, get, we'll hit the Reformation and all that, and then we'll look at the streams within Protestantism doctrinally, and they're basically three, probably, um, and that won't take too long because some of that we already know. So, uh, and then we'll then we'll begin um, looking at the the cults. Okay. All right, <clears throat> Father in heaven, we're grateful. I know that there's light, Lord, wherever there are people, because you give it to us. But I I'm thankful that we have such an abundance of light. Um, those of us who live in the Western world and especially live in the United States as difficult and as rotten as things are getting, still there's so much more light here that we have that the rest of the world in many cases doesn't have. I thank you for the scriptures that we have and that we have that light that we have easy access to Help us walk in the light, remembering that with great light comes great responsibility. Dismiss us with your presence, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.